This is a, uh, a fascinating time to be alive. God is uh, very busy bringing his people Israel back into the land of Israel. They're coming from all over the world, uh, and we are, I think, uh, blessed to be able to turn on the TV and see it happening. But just as Ezekiel, uh, you heard in the dry bones, and many other prophets predicted, most of the Jewish people who have been brought back into the land uh, have not embraced uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, which is how they would say Jesus the Messiah, yet. But they will. And as the uh, Valley of Dry Bones illustrates, they are physically alive and in the land, but they are still spiritually uh, dead. But in that last verse of uh, Ezekiel 37, 14, God said, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Well, that begs a question, doesn't it? When is that going to happen? When is uh, Israel, national Israel, uh, going to turn uh, to the Messiah and, as we will say next week, say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a lot of uh, Bible prophecy about these things that uh, indicate that, corporately speaking, the Jewish people will not turn to God until after the rapture of the church and then after the seven-year tribulation period, which uh, is more accurately called the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. At that time, all the Jewish people surviving the tribulation, which is going to be the worst seven years on earth in all of human history, and by the way, praise God, if you're in Christ, you'll be watching from the mezzanine, the Jews who survive that terrible period uh, will embrace Jesus and enter into his millennial kingdom. We who are in Christ, who have already been uh, in heaven and received our glorified bodies at the rapture, will return uh, with the Lord for that thousand years. I am very aware that much of the church does not teach uh, the details or the importance of prophecy, so this might sound foreign to you, uh, but I would remind you that uh, something like two-fifths, 40% of the Bible is prophetic in nature, and we ought not to uh, uh, push it aside uh, just because it may be a little more difficult to understand. If you do want to understand what God is about to do, you must understand the book of Daniel and especially the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, which lay out Israel's future uh, in advance. If you're new to these things, these prophetic things, two questions probably come to mind. How accurate were Daniel and the prophets so far? And how close are we uh, to the end of this age? Well, let me say that Daniel was written in the 500s B.C., uh, toward the end of the Babylonian captivity. His book was translated from Hebrew to Greek about 280 B.C., along with the rest of the Old Testament. That translation, which is called the Septuagint, 
is very well documented. And it's very important from our point of view because it proves that all of those things were in writing more than two centuries before Christ was even born. So accurate are those prophecies that a lot of people said they must have written it afterward and made it sound like it was predictive. But we have this Greek manuscript uh, that was in writing 280 or so years before Christ was even born. And so we know uh, that these things were predicted in advance. Everything that Daniel and the other prophets uh, predicted that has already come to pass has come to pass exactly and precisely. Uh, this is no uh, weird uh, putting together of words like Nostradamus that you can make say anything you'd like. Um, I don't recommend it, but if you've uh, ever read your horoscope in the newspaper, you'll see that that's the same way, right? Everybody with this particular sign can read this thing and go, oh, that's just about me. That is not how God's prophecy works. He is very, very precise. The first three, when you talk about how close are we, the first three of those four verses in Daniel chapter 9 are already finished. They predicted the coming of Messiah the Prince, the Mashiach Nagid in Hebrew, which we will observe next week as Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9.9, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know what? I, I love things like that because it proves that God wrote the Bible. If some man had written the Bible and they were announcing the king of Israel, I guarantee you they would not have had him riding into town on a donkey. Right? But God did to distinguish him from the rest so we'll observe that next week. Um, but Daniel's, uh, the first three of those four verses also predict the Lord's death, and not for himself, but for others. Uh, they predict the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans, which took place in A.D. 70. And then there is a separation. There's 69 weeks of years, and then one more week of years in Daniel's prophecy, and in between is the church age. It's the age that we inhabit. It began, of course, on Pentecost, which is uh, coming up in May. It began on Pentecost, the year of the cross. And the church age will end at the rapture of the church, which will then set the stage for Daniel 9.27, which is that seven-year period um, that we call the tribulation. <clears throat> After that comes the millennial reign of Christ on this earth, which is predicted and described in Daniel chapter 2 and many other places. Daniel's prophecy was given to the Jews, which is why the church age only appears as a comma. <laughs> and by the way, that happens 24 times in Scripture, where God is addressing Israel about future things and he goes, here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen, comma, and then here's what's going to happen. We're the comma. I'm happy to be a comma. <laughs> anyway, Daniel's prophecy was given to the Jews. And of course there is, and you don't need me to tell you, there has been a, an awful lot of unbiblical 
teaching in the church about all of these things. Uh, some Protestant denominations say that uh, uh, the Israel that exists today is not the Israel of the Bible. Some denominations go so far as to boycott Israel, uh, which, by the way, is a very bad idea because Genesis 12.3 is still in effect where God said to Abram, uh, the father of the Jews, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So if you want to be cursed by the God of the universe, then by all means dishonor Israel. One reason that America has been so richly blessed is that she has stood by Israel all these years, and I shudder to think what will happen if that changes. Some denominations and sects teach or believe that the church has replaced Israel, but that is also opposed to what the Bible teaches. Israel and the church are two very different entities, although they are related. Uh, how many of you know that Jesus is Jewish? Yeah. You know, we forget that sometimes, don't we? We think we're all that in the church, but Jesus is Jewish. And he's not only the king of the world, he's the king of Israel. And he is coming again to sit on King David's throne. It's very interesting, though, because when Israel is in focus, or uh, in ascendance, if you will, the church is really not. And as we come to the arrival of Christ in his first advent, and the cross, and all the things that follow, the church comes into view, and Israel kind of fades into the background. But it is not forgotten, and God is not done. God's people, Israel, were, uh, for the last time, finally dispersed in A.D. 135. You've heard of uh, Masada, right? That was kind of the last gasp, if you will. And then the Romans were able to <clears throat> really boot them out uh, en masse. And the people of Israel were not brought back to the land of Israel until May of 1948. You know, uh, we shouldn't just gloss over things like that because it, that is truly, truly a miracle. There is no other people group ever on planet Earth recorded having been dispersed for that period of time, I mean 1,800 years, and then remember their uh, heritage and be brought back and given again the land that they came from. It is all a miracle of God. It is my opinion that in May of 1948, the whole church should have gone, <gasps> it's all happening just like God said it would. Unfortunately, a lot of people would rather stand on their pride than change their teaching. And so we have this conglomeration of ideas today. In 1948, Ezekiel 36 and 37 began to come to pass. And the rest, especially 38 and 39, will happen very likely after the church is complete, after the rapture. In Acts chapter, there's a reason I'm giving you all this, so there is a test too. So <clears throat> the rest will happen after the church is complete. In Acts chapter 15, which is a very important chapter for Gentile believers, by the way, James, the half-brother of our Lord, 
uh, obviously uh, uh, same mothers, different fathers, right? Joseph and God. James, the half-brother of our Lord, explained that when God is done bringing people into the church, he will once more turn his attention to Israel. James said in Acts 15, verse 14, Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles, which happened in Acts chapter 10 when Peter went to Cornelius, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. A couple of interesting things about this uh, little passage. One, it says, after this, I will return. Well, you have to have left in order to return, right? So Jesus came in his first advent, and he is the one who is building the church. And when the church is complete, he says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, or the house of David. It's a way of saying the royal house of David. So when God finishes taking a people from the Gentiles for his name, he will rebuild the royal house of David. And that takes place when the church is complete at the rapture. Until then, anyone... And isn't this glorious? Anyone, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, can be brought into the church by God's grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the moment that one believes, one is justified forever and sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 say this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I always like to stop there to mention that uh, that guarantee, the word that is rendered guarantee from the Greek, is the same word uh, that Greek uses for an engagement ring. Now, isn't that a pretty thought? When you believe in Christ, you are engaged. And the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring who guarantees that everything God has started in us, God will finish. I think uh, the Holy Spirit has been a bit uh, shortchanged by the mainstream church. <clears throat> Excuse me. That choir director just. <laughs> Do not buy Connie a whip. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Holy Spirit, I think, has been shortchanged by the mainstream church. I suppose that there's some fear, isn't there, of weirdness or something uh, in this very naturalistic age. We live in an age where the opponents of God are trying to answer all of life's riddles 
without God, you see. And uh, some very crazy ideas come out of that. Evolution, for one, uh, which is uh, a fairy tale for adults, if you'd like my synopsis. I think people think that this talking about the spirit or whatever is, is weird. Uh, and I don't know that, but I do know this. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 that you heard read says that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, so with that in mind, how many of you have the spirit of Christ? Okay, about, yeah, we got a little work to do. <clears throat> so what does any of this have to do with Israel? I know you're just dying to, to find out, but all the promises of God that flow to the church, all of the promises of the Holy Spirit and all the rest were first made to Israel. National Israel, and this is a, a, an easy way to picture this, uh, is temporarily uh, in the penalty box, so to speak. So the church is currently uh, the beneficiary of those promises. The blessings that we receive in the church age come to us through Israel, while Israel waits. And while Israel waits, we, the church, are already in the new covenant that God promised to the Jews, most notably through another prophet, Jeremiah. <clears throat> in Jeremiah 31, and starting at verse 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Wait, with whom? Israel and Judah. It's a Jewish thing, right? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And of course, that's referring to Moses, Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. <clears throat> it's not like that, God says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. See, no tablets of stone. Rather, I will write it on their hearts, God says. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that covenant is ours right now, isn't it? We just celebrated communion this morning. This is the new covenant written in the blood of Christ. I think it's been well said that the entire Bible is a love letter written in blood on a cross in Israel 2,000 years ago. We who are in Christ have been forgiven. We have the law of the Spirit written on our hearts, and we know God. And our joy and our pursuit must be to know Him better. The Jews are still waiting, 
But their day is coming, and God has not forgotten them. <clears throat> Jeremiah goes on to say this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. He has fixed the order of the sun, the moon, and the stars of the seas. Has that order departed? No, I think we'd have noticed. Yeah. So God has not forgotten his people Israel, and he's not finished with national Israel. Did you notice it didn't just say Jewish people, it said Israel would then cease to be a nation before me forever. God is not done with Israel, but the church is already receiving the benefits of God's promises to Israel. Which brings me to the point of all of this background. Um, if you would please open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 8 that Debbie read from. Romans chapter 8. Uh, by the way, it is a glorious chapter uh, described by some as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. And I think it's really appropriate because it begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And everything in between is just glory, glory, glory. Romans uh, chapter 8. I guess we'll just start again at verse 1. It's very important that we understand this. We have the new covenant, which as I said, is not like the old covenant. It is not a bunch of written laws that we have to carry around in our pocket and go, oh, can I do this? Can I do that? It's an entirely new covenant, isn't it? And we who are in Christ, listen, we are not under the law. That means that the Old Testament law cannot condemn you to hell if you are in Christ. That is very good news. We are not under the law. The new covenant does require a law, but it's a spiritual law. And it is of utmost importance that we understand the difference. Since we have been justified by faith, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, do you understand how important that is? I promise you, if we could screw this up, we would. So praise God, we can't. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life, that's capital S, Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In Romans uh, 5, 6, and 7, uh, you can think of it as law school. Paul teaches us in those chapters all about the difference between the law and living by the law and living by the uh, Spirit. And he also teaches us that the law, even though it came from God and is perfectly holy, the law cannot save anyone because the flesh is weak and none of us can keep it perfectly. But we are not under that law. 
praise God, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh or the sinful nature, as the NIV puts it, but according to the Spirit. So friends, if you are in Christ, the law cannot condemn you. I don't recommend that you try that out on a policeman when you're caught speeding. I've tried that. <laughs> Actually worked once. I, <laughs> but we are not uh, under the law. The law cannot condemn you if you're in Christ. And listen, this is what it's a whole change of life because Instead of tiptoeing around, worrying about offending God by breaking some, something on some list of rules, we can boldly follow the Holy Spirit who is in us. And as long as we're doing that, we will not sin. You see, sin is still sin. God is still God, but we've been changed and we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, making it possible to live of this Christian life. I might also mention that uh, um, I mentioned weirdness before. You know, if you follow in the New Testament the arrival of the Holy Spirit in people, um, yes, there are some sign gifts and some other things, but you know what is 100% consistent? Everybody who gets indwelt with the Holy Spirit immediately begins to talk about God. That's a difference. They immediately begin to proclaim Jesus. Uh, check it and see, beginning in Acts 2. Anyway, uh, uh, if you are in Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And none of us are able to follow that law perfectly because the flesh is weak. But praise God, this is what Jesus has done. Jesus has completed the righteous requirements of the law. It's done, it's finished, and has given us his righteousness. And now we can follow his spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow, that's pretty scary. Because such were we. But did you get that? No matter how religious you appear or how moral you seem or how friendly you are or what a good parent or neighbor or boss or employee you are, no matter how good you are, according to human standards, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you cannot please God. I think there's a lot of confusion about that. 
But, verse 9, praise God, says that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. And so you can see how important it is for us to tell the world about salvation in Jesus Christ because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And how do we get the Spirit? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 again said, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, when that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee the engagement ring, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see what Christ has done for us? He gave up the form of God which was rightfully his and became a human being so that he could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law by living, listen, a sinless life and then dying in our place literally becoming sin for us to pay for our sins. And at the very moment that we each believe that, we are sealed forever by the Holy Spirit of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so very grateful that you don't uh, just give us a new rule book and say, here, follow this, as if we could, but that you put your own spirit inside of us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us, for, for baptizing us into the body of Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering us that we might walk this Christian walk. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us words to speak, for teaching us, for being right alongside us and in us. We thank you, Lord, that you have done all of these things and they are finished. And all we need to do is surrender again and again at the foot of the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not done working in us, but that you will finish what you've started. And we pray that thanksgiving in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.